my name is Justin Clear, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the filmmaker that made some of the biggest movies ever, Sergei Bondarchuk. That's right. Biggest in terms of mass, mm-hmm. size, runtime, budget adjusted for inflation. It's still International Month here on the Important Cinema Club podcast, by the way. And this week, we're traveling back to the former USSR. I'm sure a lot of you listening think that the private sector should do everything. <laughs> and, I, and I disagree. Mm. And one of the reasons I disagree is because, look, let's say you're celebrating or marking, I should say, the 150th anniversary of Napoleon's invasion of Russia. Get uh, me Ridley Scott. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> We're also doing this episode because we want to piggyback on the Napoleon fever that's currently sweeping the nation. Is that actually why we're doing it? Is that why you suggested it? No, it just was a uh, pure coincidence. Pure right? coincidence, yeah. And let's say there's a sort of arms race going on between East and West over who can make the biggest epics. And let's say the West already adapted one of the great Russian novels. And Russia went, whoa, whoa, whoa. We are embarrassed that this was a huge success in Russia, so we have to do it ourselves as well. That's right. King Vidor in 1956 made his film War and Peace, which was over three hours long, certainly long by the standards of a Hollywood film. And we, of course, watch it for this podcast. No, no. no. Uh, Well, look, during this time, the 1950s and the 1960s, the West was making all of these huge historical epics from the Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments of the 1950s. The genre went into its decadent phase in the 1960s with the $44 million budgeted Cleopatra and Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle, would that count? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And one such epic was that King Vidor, War and Peace. And in 1961, a panel of Soviet writers and filmmakers presented a letter to the Minister of Culture who was planning this War and Peace adaptation to show up Hollywood and said, and I quote, it is a matter of honor for Soviet cinema to create a film that, in its artistic significance and truthfulness, is superior to a similar American-Italian film. Italian because Dino De Laurentiis produced the King Vidor film. We consider Sergei Bondarchuk to be the most suitable director for this film. Now, I've always been like, who is this Sergei Bondarchuk? I'm going to say his name differently every time, ladies and gentlemen, even though I have it phonetically written in front of me. Look, it wouldn't be the Important Cinema Club podcast if we pronounced a director's name correctly. Mm-hmm. And so I went into his biography and I quickly realized, oh, the reason that for his second directorial effort, he got to helm a you know seven-hour epic was he was a very popular actor. Yeah. Yeah, that's why. That's right. I mean, he had a pretty normal upbringing. His father fought in the Red Army. He himself fought in the Second World War against the Nazis for the Russians. Afterwards, became a sort of wonderkind actor. I mm. believe he was like the youngest actor to win Russia's top acting prize, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not that much colorful in his early life. And I did watch his first film, Destiny of Man, from 1959. And I will say it's interesting. It didn't quite work for me. What is it? It is a film that Sergei stars in, as he would as well, War and Peace. And it's about a man who goes to World War II, has a bad time, if you will, comes back and finds... <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine so. <laughs> ...that his yeah. family has been killed. And, you know, structurally, it's a little odd, because if you look at the poster, the poster is like Sergei holding the hand of a little boy. That only actually kind of happens near the end of the film, the big dramatic moment. It's mostly like a catalog and big 
Orson Wellesian flourishes of him kind of going through. He gets kidnapped by the Germans. He escapes. And it's kind of a first-time filmmaker kind of thing showing his stuff. A good American equivalent would be someone like Laurence Olivier, who was also like Sergei was a star of the stage as well as the screen. And like Laurence Olivier, he starred in his movies. He directed them. But the difference between Sergei is I feel that his stylistic preoccupations are much closer to someone like Orson Welles. It's surprising that somebody with relatively little directorial experience would get the War and Peace job. There's a whole long story about it. There were a lot of factions fighting other factions in the Russian Ministry of Culture at the time that led to him getting the job. There were many... Wait, wait, wait. It wasn't just everybody agrees and they just move forward with it with no problem? There were many cooks in the kitchen. One thing is certain, though, that this man took the bull by the horns. I mean, he's a star. So right there, he's like, he has more authority because people looking at him go, oh, he is popular with the public. He is recognizable. He has already directed a film. He can take this job. And what a job it was. This is a film that was shot over the course of six years. Sergei had two heart attacks during it. I like the anecdote that it may not be 100% true that he had one of the heart attacks while watching I Am Cuba. So here, here is my case for why we need a communist government to invest heavily in the film industry. Well, let's look at mainland China and see how their films are coming out. L- listen, if they, could, if they could do this, mm-hmm. like what if you had a government that would give the film industry its full army tens of thousands of troops all in one scene what if he can get thousands of actual horses on the screen what if he can get 8.29 million rubles folks i was reading an interesting article by charles bromesco in in vox explaining some of the ridiculous demands that were placed on the production bonderchuk i mean he had the whole world at his disposal here Brumesco writes, he filled his opulent sets with chandeliers, furnitures, and other 19th century relics on loan from over 40 museums across the USSR. The military advisors acting as Bondarchuk's consultants gave him the go-ahead to marshal thousands upon thousands of actual soldiers to use as extras. My favorite detail of all, Bondarchuk was insistent upon using the meticulously bred Borzai dogs for the fox hunting sequence in keeping with the national tradition, except that the noble bred species had grown uncommon. He managed to find 16 of them, only to discover that the canines had lost the tracking instinct. His fix? Borrow a pack of wolves from the state zoological department, get some sentans from the Ministry of Defense to chase down the wolves, and send the boar's eyes to follow the hounds. So that was by Bromesco and Fox. Now, when I do hear all that information, though, I I steal myself for, boy, this is going to be a weighty, boring epic where everything is very minutely perfect, but there'll just be no kind of, you know, energy behind it. Well, because the precedent in your mind is for the big American epic. Hollywood versions, yeah. Of this period, which a movie like Cleopatra or the... the, I've never seen Cleopatra all the way through. You know, I've never seen it either. Because it's boring. It's boring. That's the reputation. Or I have seen The Greatest Story Ever Told. Yeah. And it's like these huge static Mm. compositions... That it's like they're designed to fill the Cinerama screen. Yeah, like it's a like, painting. Look at it. Yeah, look at it, and we're just gonna sit in it. Yeah, and at their worst, those movies feel vacuum sealed and dead. I mean, something that War and Peace reminds me of a little bit are the early epics by D.W. Griffith, mm-hmm. where where it's like very energetic and present, and they are excited to move from like sequence to sequence. Well, Griffith famously said words to the effect of, you know, towards the end of his life, he said, "What was missing." 
missing in. Please give me money to make a movie. Yeah, and, and he said, you know, the South will rise again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said I was sorry. <laughs> yeah, but, but he said that, you know, pictures today, they don't have the wind in the trees, which is what Griffith's movies did have. They had some other stuff, too. I hasten to add, I'm aware of what was in D.W. Griffith's movies. But we're forcing Film 101 students to watch that movie anyway. But it's like, uh, watching War and Peace, I was reminded of Intolerance, where it's like, you know, the huge Babylon scene in Intolerance, where there's something happening in every plane of the frame. Mm. I mean, just compare even War and Peace to a similarly epic classic film, Gone with the Wind. Now, that is a film that just is leaden, just kind of sits there. I do like Flourishes of Gone with the Wind, but it is also a film that David O. Selznick, he's basically the director on that film. Well, the thing about Gone with the Wind, I'm often reminded of the quote that Rossini supposedly said of Wagner. He has lovely moments and brutal quarter hours. (laughs) Uh, Like, when you think of Gone with the Wind, you you think think of the the burning of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You think of all those soldiers' corpses, like, as the camera pulls out. And you forget a little bit all the... Uh, soap opera scenes of just being at Tara. That's what mm-hmm. the house is called, right? Mm-hmm. And this movie, well, in War and Peace, War and Peace is a pretty dizzying visual experience where the interior palace scenes, I found it a little disorienting just in the first of the film's four parts. Yeah, well, in the first of the film's four parts, is it five? Because, like, the first one it, is split yeah. in two. So it was released as four films. Yes. But, but yeah, that's it true. It is technically five parts. So, so the first part, the way that I would almost describe it is kind of like, you know, a little bit of a lively version of Margaret Duras's India song. That's right. Where like everybody looks like they're rotting, like they're having these conversations in these big banquet halls and there's almost like a stink of death. And just the way that these Soviet films look, I love it so much. Whatever celluloid they were using, nobody oh. else was because it's just you got these colors you see nowhere else. But they are instantly recognizable as being from the Soviet era. But yeah, I like the comparison to India song because yeah, like it feels as the war is breaking out, you're basically spending your time with all these noblemen and dignitaries at the beginning who, who are suck. Like, and the movie wants to show you that they and suck. are completely removed from the reality of the conflict and the camera like it's always roving through these rooms, through these very complicated tracking shots. It's not Hollywood style composition and editing, not like, you know, the, the like very, shot over shot. Yeah. Yeah. Very linear. The camera is more like this force and it doesn't for a long time, doesn't necessarily give you a single point of identification. Like I, you don't even know who's going to be the main characters. If you're not familiar with war and peace, which I'm sure me and will have read in multiple translations. Oh, right? Yes. Yes. As well as the original Russian. <laughs> yes. I, you went through with a dictionary making sure that the translation was correct. Yep, it took me the first 18 years of my life, day in, day out, Mm -hmm. looking word after word, and I still don't understand what it was about. But yeah, eventually the movie comes to the central love triangle, and it goes back and forth between this sort of macro and micro telling of the story. And I think that when you watch all of the films, one after the other, which is the way they've been screened theatrically as well, is like, there's probably a break in between them, that you can feel the kind of construction that Sergei is doing where they're like the first part is almost hermetically sealed the camera's moving but there's a rot to everything that you're seeing and the second one which has the first big battle scene 
reaches an almost like operatic finale mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, there's like energy and kind of emotion there. And then the third one, when you change perspective and now you're suddenly following Natasha, the character, there's almost like a useful jubilance to all of these things. Some of them we've seen before, like the big ballroom sequences. Yeah, the ballroom sequences. And then there are all these other shots. I mean, it's tradition to compare the movie to Terrence Malick because Bonnerchuk's bon people whispering people whispering thoughts. and also Bonnerchuk pays attention to like it's a much broader ecosystem than just the love triangle and the battles this like, gets compared to Terrence Malick a lot yeah like, like in the more idyllic lyrical sections uh, like he's interested he's interested in the earth he's interested in the trees literally the wind through the trees which you see I think it, almost at the beginning of all the parts yeah which I mean I think like you know he uses the seven hour runtime to convey a sense of the whole of Russia mm. you know not just the not just the Pearl Harbor like love triangle and we didn't point out either that Sergei of course stars in the film a 40 year old man playing a 20 year old yeah I don't love that that's kind of my least favorite element of the film I, I don't think he's bursting with charisma here I think he's fine because the character of Pierre in the original novel is supposed to be kind of a milk toast mm -hmm. who gains a sense of self as the story progresses that he gets like cucked and then he's <laughs> looking for you know meaning in his life and finally he finds it helping the fellow man just like Tolstoy had as well as a kind of aristocrat who discovered ah yes the people have value as well humanity good cheer that should be the thing that should guide us throughout life I oh. mean the movie spectacle is what people remember about yeah it. we didn't even talk about that so the battle scenes and which is unprecedented unrepeatable probably mm -hmm. because he actually had the Soviet army at his disposal you know you've got hundreds of people in the frame again action at almost every plane of the frame explosions going off everywhere I don't quite know how to describe it except that it's not just it's not just static compositions the, it's not pedestrian filmmaking the way the camera interacts with these massive crowd sequences swooping overhead it's Wellsian like there's a shot if it's a wide angle shot of a guy falls over on the ground the camera he kind of sits up the camera tracks to the person leading the army in a big close-up no cuts on his face and then the camera pulls back to a bird's eye view almost, to see all like, the armies yeah. clashing like almost as if it's a drone mm. which it can't be it's, no. a, it's a crane or a helicopter it's a crane yeah, yeah that's yeah. going insanely high and it probably took them two weeks to set up that shot it should be noted as well as that like in this movie sergey isn't really trying to make these battle scenes exciting in any way all of the battle scenes and the kind of wonder at what's being portrayed is all in the service of chaos and the individual being lost in this going on and not being able to keep track well yeah it, it's not exciting in the action no. movie sense but like it's powerful in the sense that you're you're constantly being having this whiplash of on the one hand seeing the epic grandeur of it with you know a god's eye view camera swooping around and then he's always cutting into the middle of the battle to show the horrible human devastation of it civilian and soldier you know corpses and bodies and things burning up and and horror and you get a sense of like all these soldiers that are fighting these battles, they don't really know what's going on. They're just following orders and in the process being shot or hurt. Almost everybody that we see that is a recognizable character have no care about their own safety, that they basically think they're the protagonist of their own story until they get gunned down unceremoniously for the movie to just go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. and did you find this movie, though, dramatically compelling? Because it is a very, for all the energy and verve, it is a very dour film in the 
the way that it plays out? Yeah, that's a good question. Did I find it dramatically compelling? I didn't find it not compelling. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I, you wanted to watch. I wanted to watch. Yeah. I was interested in Natasha. Yes. I was interested in the love triangle. <laughs> Natasha, who was a young ballerina who had never acted any movies before, and as many people have pointed out, they just cast her as well because she looked like Audrey Hepburn who was in the King Vidor version and because the King Vidor version was very popular in Russia they wanted to kind of like create that connection to go oh yeah you know you really loved her in this movie hey look someone that looks exactly like her but in a better version of this film by the way she was the one who accepted the Oscar for best foreign film I'm shocked that it won best foreign film well just not only because it's a Soviet production Mm -hmm. but the fact that it's seven hours long yes but I mean this movie did receive I would say unprecedented exposure in the West for a Soviet production I don't think they released a seven hour version i believe they released a cut down version of it but a full version played over four nights on abc in 1972 wow. yeah that's right that's wild i wonder if they cut some stuff out of it because it gets pretty violent in those I war mean, scenes i mean maybe they did but yeah i i guess certain of the action scenes in this movie are just kind of undeniable like when you see them even probably on the small screen you're like how can you do that and even especially watching them today i feel where like those hollywood epics are a thing of the past that there is not that kind of oh, when you watch something like Cleopatra in the, you know, modern day $500 million equivalent because they don't do it for real anymore. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, you remember when we were growing up and like, you remember the movie Troy when all the all the TV the ads CGI, had like, that that CGI army with yeah. the big pullout and like I never knew anybody who was impressed by that at all. No, because the thing about those kind of things is that's only exciting if you're engaged in the story. Otherwise, look at War and Peace and the kind of like armies clashing. Can you do something more interesting than that? If you can't, then like I don't know, rethink what you're doing. But yeah, you were asking me, do I find this movie dramatically compelling? And like I, I do, like to a degree. Yeah. Th- there are def- there are definitely love stories I've been more invested. I think that like every actor is playing it pretty kind of deadpan in the way that they're doing, except for maybe Natasha. Her character is constantly crying because she is supposed to be a very useful, I guess it's been described, unmature person within the narrative. The macro story, though, of the war and its impact Mm. on Russia, like is 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 compelling, is compelling and is and is enormous. But but I also think that question you ask is particularly relevant to Bondarchuk's follow up film, which we'll get to in a little bit. I think that like the drama in this movie the kind of spectacle is very well parsed out in that like you're not okay i'm tired of these big battle scenes like let's move on to something else that by the last part which is just kind of russia being invaded by france it is engaging that even if you're at a little bit of a disconnect of sergey's character pierre when he finally gets some kind of proactiveness that there, you do get involved in that. Like the romance, I think a little bit less, like you want to see how it plays out, but it's not like tears were streaming down my face while I was watching it. So from like a construction standpoint, it's very sound. Now I can't speak to it as an adaptation again, never having read war and peace, but I will, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I am fascinated though, that it was also pitched as a film in the same way that mainland China does all the time of like honoring a battle in this case, the battle of 1812. Mm -hmm. And I think only someone like Sergei could portray it in the way that it's portrayed in this film, where there's almost like a mainland Chinese, you know, the big battle scene happens and there's a freeze frame and they go, well, they may have lost, but 
it did change, you know, Russia. There was a moral victory. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which is yeah. like, you, nothing in this battle seemed to be like a moral victory. <laughs> yeah. like, it was just misery and suffering. Yeah. Now, it, I think that Sergei is also interesting when you compare him to someone like Orson Welles, who famously, his battle scene, he had no resources to do it in Chimes at Midnight. But it has a similar impact. I exactly. Like, and that you can do it both ways. And sometimes, you know, someone like Sergei, Hollywood comes a sniffing, one best foreign film, and they're like, all right, we want you to do it as well. And well, we're going to yeah. get Dino De Laurentiis, who produced the Hollywood version of War and Peace to be the producer of Sergei's, I guess his only technical Hollywood film, even though that Moss film also invested a bunch of money in it, Waterloo. Right, which is about the the Battle of Waterloo, you mm -hmm. know, with Rod Steiger as Napoleon. <laughs> Can we just talk about Rod Steiger in this movie with Napoleon? I kind of like him, he's, I don't know. I love him, he's so hammy. Yeah. There's this one scene where he's dictating letters, like multiple letters at the same time, and he he's like, you know, I would give you... I did not steal the crown. I found it in the gutter. I like that he's kind of a past his prime Napoleon. Yeah, you know? covered in sweat. Yeah. Like, Napoleon probably the way that he actually looked. So, yeah, on the one hand, you got Napoleon trying to seize power that one last time. Y'all know the story. He's mm. the most famous man in human history. Then you've got Christopher Plummer as the British. You know, I enjoyed Christopher Plummer in this movie because he brought something that I felt War and Peace needed just a little bit, which is levity. Like when Christopher Plummer is like, oh boy, we're going to have to be very careful with this strategy. Like mm -hmm. you can feel almost like a sarcasm to the things that he's saying, which brought a much needed kind of, you know, different vibe because this movie's all battle scenes. Okay. Yeah. It's as if Dino De Laurentiis said, do War and Peace for me, but just give me the action. And again, the Russian army was involved in this film. Again, the battle sequences in this movie, just in terms of scale, just in terms of what is in the frame, are as impressive as what's in War and Peace. But it is but, not dramatically compelling. <laughs> no. And the comparison to Chimes at Midnight, I think, is very interesting. Because, again, Chimes at Midnight, Orson Welles had, what, 20 extras at any given time? Mm -hmm. Whatever number he had. And it's one of the most famous battle scenes in history. This movie, hundreds of extras. Thousands, maybe. Mm -hmm. Again, clashing for an hour and like every single shot is impressive yes huge formations huge explosions and and i i like this movie kind of yeah i i it's it's a film that exists to be clipped and then a minute put on twitter and people are like look at this which literally happened two weeks ago. Really? Yes. Yeah, okay. You could put any minute of this movie on Twitter and say, if this came out today, this movie would be instantly legendary. Mm -hmm. And maybe... And guess what? It's out? I don't even think it ever made it to Blu-ray in North America. <laughs> like, yeah. that's how, like, low-level the love for this movie is. Yeah, and... Like, as I was watching this movie, for the first half, I was quite invested in it, actually, because the story of Napoleon is inherently interesting. Well, when you're seeing Rod just act and, like, go yeah. through these motions, it's so fun. But he, once the battle starts, disappears from the narrative because he's not really doing anything. And then it's battle scene after battle scene after battle scene. And, yeah, you don't have that human connection, really. And, you you know, in War and Peace, you do have protagonists that are in the battle, but the battles are also not an hour long and you don't lose them completely. And you don't, you're not supposed to know what's going on. And Waterloo, you are supposed to know some of the strategies that are happening mm -hmm. and things going on, but like it, it just kind of fades. It becomes because, meaningless. Yeah. There's so much of it. It's like Steven Spielberg's 1941, just like screaming <laughs> and loud noises the entire way through. And yet I do kind of like this movie just like because, movie. because 
Let no me look movie at like it. this exists. Yeah. That's why. And I say, put this on in the background. <laughs> I have never seen a movie that has this much spectacle just wind down. It's like, oh, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's it? Okay. And the yeah. credits are rolling. Like, yeah. There's no big kind of event. Almost because like you get the sense maybe that Sergei was like, well, I don't want to create some fictional conflict between all of these people. So it's like there is no big confrontation between any of the generals or anything like that. It's just like the battle is lost. We move on. Yeah, which is admirable. Yep, I, I think it's interesting, even though it may not be, again, I go back to that word, compelling viewing. Mm -hmm. After Waterloo, Sergei, I feel like, was basically kind of pushed into the cinema de papa of Russia. Mm -hmm. Of like, all right, yeah, this guy made these big epics that were very successful in his time. Now you go over to the side and you can make your little propaganda films, but you're not going to be in the general conversation, at least in any North American territories. You know, he continued to like serve on the jury of the Moscow Film Festival mm -hmm. or give out the prize for the Moscow Prize. he's undeniable as an actor and yeah. as a director just from something like War and Peace. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was looking, I was like, wait, he did the Mexican Sergei Eisenstein movie. And it's like, oh, no. He just did the, like, when they put all the pieces together oh, in the yeah. late 70s, he did narration on it. Mm -hmm. As probably, like, you know, he is the big, important filmmaker. I was interested that he did direct a two-part epic about John Reed, the subject of Warren Beatty's. Basically around the same time as Rad's, too. Yeah, it was probably the same kind of war and peace situation right. where he's like, we can do it. Mostly because it stars Franco Nero in the main role. Oh, my God. You know what's wild about that movie? It only exists in a full screen VHS version. Oh. So the, the first part, you can get it in English. The second part, only in German, not available anywhere. I wonder why. Like, you'd think that with the attention of something like War and Peace, but, you know, maybe our relationships with Russia these days aren't so hot. So, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. And again, he's a cinema de papa, so it's like... At the time, they're like, all right, yeah, you do your thing, but we're not going to give it too much attention. I'm inclined to think that if his his John Reed movie was good, you would have heard, heard about, about it. it. I've never heard about that Franco Nero wasn't this big epic I mean, what, what a curio, though. Wow. I think also because looking at Letterboxd, like, no one's reviewed it because it's just not really available. Mm -hmm. And of course, that full screen version, it's like burnt in subtitles as yeah. well. That's the only way that it exists. But a fascinating filmmaker that I feel that he did get his due when Criterion kind of like toured War and Peace in theaters again. I wish I could have seen it in theaters. I, I mean, a massive it. restoration mm -hmm. job. Yeah. I mean, the whole film was shot, we didn't even mention in 70 millimeter. I cannot imagine moving the camera the way that it is in this movie with 70 millimeter cameras. All right, forget that. Imagine having to project this movie. A nightmare. An absolute nightmare. Like, like a, a, but an it was ocean liner full of film reels. But it was, except for that four night one, I think in Russia it spanned two years, didn't it, that it was like released <laughs> That's in right. parts. I didn't even mention that this movie started filming in 1961 and then it was released throughout 1966 and 1967. 1967. I mean, that's probably the way to consume it. Yeah. Like, not in one big chunk where you're like, like oh we my did. god. Yeah. We're halfway through, it's like, how am I ever going to Get through this. <laughs> and we did. We're on the other side. We're alive. Or are we? <laughs> so do we have any letters, Justin? We do. As per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Andrew B. And it's a very short one. Dear Justin and Will, after months of hearing about this movie on your podcast, my wife and I watched it last night. We loved it. 
people are wondering, where should we watch next after Farley and Roxburgh? Don't let the river beast get you. All the best, the Bacons. So talking about, of course, the Matt Farley, Charles Roxburgh oeuvre. Mm-hmm. Don't let the river beast get you. We are legally obliged to bring it up every couple every, of episodes. Every episode. Yep. Whenever the Letterboxd review says, oh, I've heard about it on the Important Cinema Club, we get $25 of royalties. They were a whole, <laughs> I wish. Recently on Twitter, I wanted to read this letter as well because someone else watched it and I can see them going through that, like the classic motor. We need a term for it of like the motor experience where it's like, boy, oh, this is so bad. It's good. Yeah. Or and, it's like, I think it did that this person who may be a listener. I think they, think are. they are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shout out to you. Thank you very much. Cause the, I commented being like, <laughs> Oh, the next movie you should watch is local legends. And he's like, Oh, Justin, I'm, I listen to your stuff. And I was like, Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. well, first of all, I'm glad you watched it. Thanks for listening. Mm. But there, there was something and I'm talking to this listener now there was something in the tone of it that's like it's good despite being bad but this is the thing is this is the process you go through when you first start watching these movies yeah which is you're like oh this is either bad on purpose or they don't know what they're doing right the writer of this tweet was like but this is like the funniest film i've ever seen and here's the thing what if it's good on purpose yes what if it's very knowingly using these aesthetics Mm -hmm. and then what if there's also a certain element of yeah we're using non-actors were using relatives who are like doing their best and and they just don't their best is not what a hollywood movie looks like mm. but they also have their own unique charisma you know yeah and is that good yeah i am I say always it is. fascinated by people who listen to the show even you know semi-regularly that have not seen this movie these movies watch them guys watch these movies don't let the reveries get you then local legends mm-hmm. yeah local legends that's the one i said go watch local, local legends. legends is the one where like if i because don't let the riverbase get think about local legends as it's very hard for me to imagine people not liking it but we can we've seen people it, who has, not liked it. it has happened but very few riverbase is fascinating because matt is for the first time probably matt and charlie getting people who are coming to the film completely outside of any context well that's because it's on the list of 250 horror films on letterbox so now you're seeing people being like what the fuck is this this isn't a horror (laughs) movie which is very funny i mean it is a horror movie there's a warning at the beginning of the film come on guys well every time the red flashes yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. but i I find it like even i was a little bit skeptic of matt and charlie when i watched river beast but i was won over instantly watching that film so i mean we've talked about it so many times where when you when you and peter screened it yeah screened it in like 2015 or whatever where i just had this feeling after 20 minutes of being like wait a minute this is good this is good yeah Yeah. (laughs) and this is just a stealth way to be an infomercial for her she got murdered and magic spot now available on blu-ray and while you're doing it why not pick up motor on motor (laughs) the book written by will sloan and me where we interview charlie and farley that's right it's on amazon yeah trufo hitchcock is it better? Mm, I don't know. I you'll think have, it is. You'll have I to read it <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, our book is better. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Blu-rays, a big bunch of Blu-rays were just put online on Gold Ninja Video, and there's some that have been in the works for a while and are still in the works, to be honest. For example, I can't believe that we're doing this, but we are putting out Night of the Ghouls on Blu-ray. That's right. Under its original title, Revenge of the Dead. Mm-hmm. This is an Ed Wood film, kind of the last of the Golden Age Ed Wood films. You got all your Ed Wood favorites. Tor Johnson, Paul Marco, I guess not all of them. Bella Lugosi's not in it. <laughs> no. But you got Kenny Duncan. Hey, it's a sequel to Bride of the Monsters. That's right. Listen, here's the thing. Night of the Ghouls, also known as Revenge of the Dead, is a beautiful fever dream 
it's a not a fever dream just a dream yeah it's like you're in a haunted house and you don't know where you are it's it's edward's jacques turner film Mm -hmm. it's very much edward's night of the demon Mm. and even if you're not the biggest edward fan but you're a fan of us you're gonna want to get this disc because if you're a fan of cinema you're gonna want to get this disc because it's full of extras elizabeth perchal does a commentary yeah it was kj shepherd i was so happy that we were able to get her on this disc and Mm -hmm. she does a really fun commentary as well there's a commentary with you and me there's a video ed wood apocrypha am i saying that that's right right. we're gonna talk about like some of the movies that ed wood may or may not have been involved in Mm -hmm. we're gonna talk we've got paul kelton the cop marco's last film (laughs) kelton's dark corner film (laughs) question mark uh, stills <laughs> it's 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 very it's this disc is full of edward ephemera i can't believe you got an introduction by the director of that as well i i can't believe it either <laughs> honestly this is my dream package mm-hmm. we also have there'll be a super eight presentation of plan nine from outer space which we'll do commentary on because it will be silent that's but right a super eight edit of plan nine i haven't even ran it through the projector like what is it i'm sure you can probably find it on youtube but i'm very excited to be able to put that on and it go into the world there is a 2k scan that was done a number of years ago final curtain which was an unsold tv pilot by ed wood which was incorporated into revenge of the dead that's right so just all sorts of ed wood stuff oh uh, two versions of revenge of the dead as well widescreen and full frame yeah so it's been available in full frame in the past but it's clearly meant to be matted in widescreen that's the way that ed probably intended it and we also have liner notes by ed wood expert greg i'm gonna say his name wrong zwire that's right. Mm-hmm. So a lot, a lot of good Edward stuff in there. And so I had this film for a while. I had talked to the director. I was like, I want to put it out. But like, I wanted to do it with an Edward project. And so I have a film called The Monster Man. And it is from 2001. It is directed, starring, written by, produced, Jose Prendis. And this movie is those kind of like underground, you know, one guy does it all by himself movies. Mm -hmm. And it's so much fun because he's putting his all in it and it co-stars the legendary Conrad Brooks. Oh man, Conrad Brooks. Conrad Brooks played a cop in Plan 9 from Outer Space. He's in most of Ed Wood's classic movies and nobody rode that like he did mm-hmm. he was a fixture of the convention circuit in the 90s he became a shot on video filmmaker himself maybe you've seen a little movie called jan gal yep or isn't it conrad brooks versus the werewolf that's a david the rock nelson film. that's right so we have a video on here we will be talking about conrad brooks's career <laughs> going through the best of it he has so many films to his credits but every I single this, one of them a masterpiece he shows up and the director of this loves conrad brooks oh. and i'm going to be interviewing the director because he has a fascinating career. He's a super nice guy. He's someone who would do like physical media reviews. You can find him under the, under the title Master Chaos on YouTube every day for a while. And I am correct that he's friends with Wet Movie 1. He is indeed friends with Wet Movie 1. So jealous. And he also has worked and still works for The Asylum. So oh. we, he wrote some of the classic Asylum films back in the day, directs for them now. He shoots films in like four days like i think that's like one of his last feature films he actually did like i don't know how he did it was that much stress of like all right i'm filming like a diaries of myself as i'm shooting a feature film in four days so i can't wait to dive into that i've talked to him like not on anything recorded when i've done like stuff with him before i can't wait to get like just a solid interview where he talks about all of his experiences including stuff like linnea quigley and tom savini are in the monster man in that perfect 
They're here for a convention. We have a motel. We're going to shoot one scene with them. <laughs> so, yeah, this you got your Paul Marco disc with Night of the Ghouls. You also have your Conrad Brooks disc with The Monster Man. Also, I have another martial arts film. And someone pointed out, I didn't even realize this, it has like five logs on Letterbox. <laughs> it is called The Golden Triangle from 1975. Not to be confused with the other Golden Triangle that also came out in 1975. <laughs> this one stars Yasuaki Kurati, the villain from Fist of Legend. You know who this guy, you've seen him a million times. He always plays like Japanese characters in Hong Kong films. You also have Hang Yang Xie, one of the Bruce Lee guys who always played like bad guys in his movies, mm -hmm. like he's in The Big Boss. Mm -hmm. And this one is directed by Chi Lo, who did The Dragon Lives Again. Yes. But I'm going to, you know, just prepare people. It's not as crazy as The Dragon Lives Again. It is a, you know, James Bond style movie that you may verbatism hear the James Bond themes throughout the film <laughs> and it's interesting as well because it is a Filipino co-production so there's a Filipino director that's credited on the film he directed Fight Batman Fight a sadly lost Filipino Batman movie that the poster is amazing it's a purple Batman holding a giant Gatling gun on the cover <laughs> or a minigun firing it and so yeah I found a print of this movie only available in the English unfortunately because this movie has almost never been released the print I have is actually in Italian so we were able to get like an English copy and be able to make it in English but I'm happy to put it out there in widescreen for the first time god so much and finally this one is for the real heads we have the new film directed by Adam the Riot Thorne Rock and Roll Asylum you may know Adam Thorne for having directed such films as Personal Space Invader yeah which I co-star in and the recent Amityville Outhouse which is included on this disc we do a commentary me and him together because I have a very small cameo I think Rock and Roll Asylum oh and what a cameo <laughs> yeah I'm pooping and right there in the title I'm the one like you know we want to see somebody in the outhouse pooping well Justin McClure's doing it Rock and Asylum, I remember watching it and going like, whoa, Adam has hit like a new level of complexity of stuff that he's doing. This is, you know, you'll sell it as a horror film, but it is like such a wild, almost mad magazine. Every influence that he has is pushed into it. It has a cast of like 30 characters all running around this asylum and it just works. Everything building to climaxes of this film that was mostly shot in the basement of Eyesore Cinema, a local Toronto video store that he makes into an asylum. This is kind of the underground filmmaking, like taken to a level of just ambition and someone who he's made so many feature films now that he can just do it in his mind, like jokes set up in the first act, pay off later, actors that were all shot separately. The director of Dinosaurs in a Mining Facility shows up, even though he does not live in Toronto. He just showed up for one day and he like that furloughed and way style that we've talked about. He appears like throughout the film, even though he only had him for like a couple of hours. So yeah, Rock and Roll Asylum. If you like underground films, pick it up. Adam did a really fun commentary as well where he interviewed the cast in that Criterion style so it's like throughout the movie different cast members come in to talk about their experience so yeah definitely recommend to pick it up this is one for the again the real heads like and I hope the people who like it enjoy it and have seen Personal Space Invader which is still available on the website which I helped shoot edited and I also co-star in it now I want you folks to consider Criterion what are, what are they putting out? What's the the bad Jackie Chan movies? That's right. And and what sort of extras do they put on them? Nothing. Little an, an, interview, an interview with a critic in a trailer. Yeah. 
and then they charge you freaking 50 bucks for it. <laughs> and and you're talking about this with, with love. Mm-hmm, yeah. Like, the, the every package. Well, these movies, like, I wouldn't put them out if I don't like them. Yeah. Because I don't have to. Like, right. I, I'm able to find these films. Some of them, like The Golden Triangle, would I call it a classic? No. But I think that it's fun enough, it's not out there, and there's a lot for me to talk about it that, like, I hope there's a full experience there. Like, I've been shocked at how many people have gone... I love King of the Bullwhip, especially with the context around it. Like now I understand what these, you know, poverty row Western films are. Because mm-hmm. something that I don't think we said when we announced it on this podcast, King of the Bullwhips, I ended up putting like five other poverty row films that I very carefully selected because I wanted different flavors and different actors and different directors. I do intros for every movie. And because they look like crap, I they don't take up that much file size, so I can put them on these Blu-rays. Wow. So you get like a little film festival of poverty row films on the King of the Bullwhip set. So, you know, I'm glad that I'm able, we were able to put this out into the world that people are willing to take chances on it and be like, this was, you know, an experience I wouldn't have had otherwise. So now this is the world's longest plug segment. Oh yeah. And it's continuing because on Patreon this week, Mm -hmm. we are talking about movie books that we've been reading lately. And these movie books, if someone knows every one of these movie books, I would be surprised. I'm not even getting any problems because there's going to be a Justin out there. <laughs> you're not going to. You're not going to give a prize. No, I don't think because anyone could just be like. If I know somebody all... can prove that they own all of these books, <laughs> no, I'm not going to give a prize. Then, then they get one free Patreon episode. What? <laughs> yeah, only one. Only one. Yeah, and you have to have. We want that post dated receipt that proves that it was you own them all before this podcast That's came right. out. That's yeah. right. So some of the books we talk about everything from Larry Fine's self published autobiography. To Jewel Shepard's Invasion of the Bee Girls interview mm-hmm. book, to the film criticism of Pierre Ressant. Oh, I don't think did I mention it on the podcast? Oh, you didn't. You yeah. mentioned it off mic. Yeah, that because it's a French book, so I didn't want to recommend okay, it. Okay, well, so that's one thing that's not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say ah, we got our ace in the hole if I had mentioned the Pierre Ressant book, but I didn't because it's in French. But I'm fascinated that France publishes these like interview books or biographies of people that would never be covered in English, like the translator of. The Hitchcock Truffaut book, who was the go-between between Hitchcock and Truffaut. Do I have a biography about her? I do. Because <laughs> I love all that kind of stuff. And France, mm, they put it out there. But we recommend books mostly. I know that the ones that I mentioned are all fairly easily accessible. Well, you may need some three bills for some of the books that he mentions. But you'll be adding them to the list and like keeping an eye out for them when you go to used bookstores. So next week, International Month, <laughs> Peter's out shamefully. Listen. This week was a lot of work. <laughs> the last three weeks have been a lot of work. Yeah. I'm just saying, a t- touch of zen, long movie. Oh, this all- should have been like long movie month. Holy shit. Yeah. All those Lars von Trier movies, very long. Yeah. War and Peace, seven and a half hours. So please forgive us. Next week is Bruno Mattel. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about the, the ugly stepchild of Italian exploitation film. Still international. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Italy. Yeah. Technically. Yeah. This man, Bruno Mattei. You've heard of Dario Argento. You've heard of Lucio Fulci. You've heard of Mario Bava. Well, this man is not in their league. Bruno Mattei is a guy that seemingly is keeping Severin afloat based on how many of his movies that they have put out. He's the king of crap. He's made such films as Rats, Night of Terror, Night Killer, Zombies, The Beginning. That's one of the later ones. Those are some of the ones we'll be talking about. But he's also done 
Robo War, Terminator 2, Shocking Dark. Hell of the Living Dead, of course, which is probably his most famous one. Oh, uh, Violence in a Women's Prison. I'm Mm. sure you folks have seen that. Oh, (laughs) how about Cruel Jaws, a movie that Universal successfully suppressed the release of because it contained actual footage from Jaws. And Severn put that out. And they shut it down again. I ca- I got it. I got time. a copy too. Yeah. yeah. And so I uh, like Bruno. Yeah, I'm fascinated by Bruno. Gonna give me a reason to crack open. Speaking of French books, that big hardcover uh, written about him. Yeah. And are we gonna find any art in there? No. Uh, yeah. No. Probably so, not. So that book, like when I read books about filmmakers like this, and they're like, "This is their true masterpiece." I always go and watch it. I'm like, "Nope." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm glad that you had passion for that Bruno Mattei film. He's a man who he worked in Italian film for a long time, working as an editor, working his way up to directing, worked in every genre. But there is fascination there, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to jump into these. I was shocked as me and Will were going through his filmography, how many of these I've seen. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I've seen that one. I've seen that one. Please don't make me watch that one again. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it multiple times. But it's going to be a lot of fun, and I can't wait to, you know, get right in there and watch some of the late period ones I haven't checked Down out. in the muck. Yep. So until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'd like to thank some of our new patrons who include Samuel Langstone, Elliot Smith, J. Stephen Rosenboom, C. Chris Bishak, Cole McCabe, Luke Field, Sean Hawkins, Jenedy Malyshev, and Sam Sagans. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing it without you. Well, the Screen Actors Guild strike is over. Finally, we can see the actors advertise their films once again. And I got to say, there was one movie that got shut down during the strike that I was legitimately worried may not restart. You were heartbroken. I was very worried. There have been a lot of movies that were shut down. Gladiator 2, Beetlejuice 2, all these movies you want to see, right? Oh, I'm so excited for Gladiator 2. <laughs> yeah. Those were all shut down. They resumed production again, though. Oh, man. If if big old, large Russell Crowe starred in Gladiator 2, I would be there opening day, ticket in hand. Instead, they got Paul Mescal. A handsome man, very charismatic, good uh, actor. Yeah. Get out of here. Fuck that shit. Yeah. Big boy. I, I want that Nick Cave script where Russell Crowe goes to hell. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what that is. But, anyway. But the movie that I was worried about was a little movie called Juror Number Two. What? What's Juror Number Two, Will? The 46th directorial effort by Clint Eastwood. I want to make clear. I know what Juror Number Two is. I am tapped into <laughs> culture. But what is it about, Will? Uh, it's a legal drama. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's about. What it's is about it? taking down the man who's making all these decisions and not letting Clint eat that ice cream. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So listen, Cry Macho came out a couple of years ago. And we're like, Clint's last film. Clint's that's last it. film. He's 91. Yeah. And David Zaslav, the head of Warner Brothers, even, even Why are said, we in the Clint Eastwood he business? He was like, why was this made? This shouldn't have been made. And then the outcry was such, I assume. That I, he got his next film off the I ground. have to assume. But he could have gone to any other studio. They'd want to be in the Clint business, right? I guess so. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about Clint Eastwood is he makes movies on budget, on time. Yep. They, they t- don't cost that much. They don't cost much. They typically make money, and sometimes they get Oscars. Mm-hmm. So... It's a good business to be in, and he's got a well-oiled team around him, and Clint Eastwood, as of this recording, is 93 years old. 93 years old, and he's on set, on his feet, and this is why we wanted to talk about this in the back matter. This is the most important part. He's got a beard. He looks like David Letterman. (laughs) Yes. Or, as some people have pointed out, John Huston. (laughs) Yes. Not unlike his character in a little movie called White Hunter, Black Heart. I want to get back to the beard, but I also want to discuss, has Clint Eastwood ever played 
someone else noticeably like he does in that movie because he's doing a John Huston impersonation in that film. Yeah, can you remember what his voice sounds like in that? Where it's like, well, I'm I'm Clint Eastwood, but I'm also John Huston. Yeah, he's trying to get the John Huston kind of like pattern. <coughs> I'm I'm coughing because it was hard for me to do that voice. Mm-hmm. Like people jump in our Discord, let us know what are some other kind of like Clint. Is- oh, I thought of one. There you go. Okay, so. It doesn't really count because for the most part he's doing his normal thing, but Pink Cadillac. I was going to say, probably Pink Cadillac. Has those scenes where he's like wearing the gold vest and everything and he has like a, a, a disguise on and he's talking in kind of a hipster accent like this. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's not a whole cool. film though. Whole film. Yeah. Are there any other whole films where he does an accent or mm-hmm. like some other, like he really gets into the role like that? I don't know. But, you know, people have been wondering, what do we think of the beard? We think it looks great. Oh, yeah. Shaves 10 years. He looks like he's 83 <laughs> instead of 93 honestly he does because when he doesn't have the beard he looks emaciated Mm -hmm. he looks really old now he looks he looks fit he looks like a mountain man he looks like he's ready to conquer the world over under when do you think clint eastwood is going to roll off this mortal coil so i predict Mm -hmm. and i hate saying this i know i know 96 96 yeah i think he lives to 96 i mean we're not gonna learn i want i want him to live 100 120 yeah he's gonna pull a manuel uh to oliviera that he'll still be directing in his hundreds yeah because you know it's just gonna happen one day right we're not gonna learn that he's sick or anything like that no like it's just gonna be like oh clinics would pass away well because like look at him he's fit as a fiddle he he goes out skiing <laughs> he's like wait he still skis like a year or two ago there was a photo of him and arnold schwarzenegger on the slopes what is his secret? What is the Clint Eastwood diet like? He must eat really well. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's probably it. 